trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you're part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. You know, there was a time when that was a phrase only understood by people who had actually read, you know, George Orwell. Maybe they had studied up on 1984 and and they actually could could get that. Nowadays, you just have to look around and and you will see examples in every direction of uh, how dangerous it is to be a wrong thinker. And I know some people use it in a pejorative sense. I don't. To me, it's a huge compliment. So if I if if I see you, if you and I meet and we shake hands or touch elbows or simply wave in a covid approved fashion from across the room. But I say you are one of my favorite wrong thinkers. I am paying you a very high compliment. I am not putting you down, nor am I trying to marginalize you. I'm paying you a confident because that means at some level you are thinking for yourself. You are questioning the, the narratives that are being uh, spoon-fed to us by blow-dried spinmeisters and highly paid manipulators. And I congratulate you for it. Heavens knows, this is not an easy place to go. And for a lot of people, it's just a lot more comfortable to just, no, I'm just going to be quiet and stay in line and not worry about, uh, you know, thinking outside the box. But I'm determined to be free. And so that's, uh, that is the message that uh, you're going to hear over and over is uh, for people who want to to have that control of their lives, who want to make their own determinations as to what is right for them. And I'm not talking about violating other people's rights. I'm just simply talking about living your life. You're in good company. I've really got to get going on a uh, Facebook page where or, or other social media page. I know Facebook is kind of persona non grata, but hey, I'd like to I'd like to get a page where we can uh, can interact as fellow lovers of freedom, free markets, just uh, lack of coercion. You know, we, we love not being coerced and our arms twisted. Now, I'm going to give you a real quick example. All right. You, you look around at what what is becoming known as cancel culture right now. One of the big things that's being talked about is, uh, of course, the actress uh, Gina Carano. Am I saying her name right? Sorry, I, I need to double check this real quick. Um, the one who was just uh, was just let go from the uh, Mandalorian. Now that Gina Carano Carano is gone, um, this is funny. The Babylon Bee actually posted a a new job listing from Disney. Hey, we have a new job opening. We are looking for an actress to replace Gina Carano in The Mandalorian. We need a woman who is strong, fierce. A fierce woman who can also be obedient, submissive, and docile when we want her to be. <laughs> Apply today. And again, the Babylon Bee knocks it out of the park. And look, here's, here's the problem that I see, though. Yes, there are some highly publicized things, and I'm not, I'm not in any way minimizing. I think what, what happened to her is just more evidence of, of a large-scale mental illness that is settling over large segments of our society. The idea that, well, she said something that I don't agree with, therefore she should be denied 
you know, the opportunity to earn a living or she should be punished by losing her job. And, you know, look how woke we are. We're the ones who let her go. It's troubling, but that is not as troubling to me as the other more. um, Well, it's not even subtle. I was going to say it's a more subtle form. It's a less popularized form of cancel culture. And, and I'm going to do my best not to, to bring any further condemnation on the restaurant in question. I'm going to have to be a little bit deliberately vague. But I want to share with you a success story from when I lived in southern Utah not so long ago. There was a street vendor who made the most incredible food. Right out there, they had a little, uh, a, a, it wasn't even a food truck. It was a cart of sorts that they would create these incredible Meals for people, especially those who love flat, round Italian style meals, if you get my drift. And they they became so popular because they really made a superior product and their prices were very good. And they were so popular that eventually people, you know, were lining up because they they would see which parking lot is this uh, is this uh, food service going to be in and became so popular, in fact, that they ended up getting a brick-and-mortar location. And even then, they became hugely popular and, and pretty much just you know took over um, a, a huge chunk of the, the retail uh, development that they, that they set up shop in. In other words, they've been very, very successful. And they're good people. But someone, possibly named Karen, <laughs> was in her was in their business uh, recently and noticed that uh, there was just not enough mask wearing going on. Now, it wasn't even a matter of, well, it's the employees that weren't wearing masks. It's a matter of they weren't forcing their customers to put on masks. And Karen, which we'll call her for for the sake of, of this person, contacted OSHA. Yes, Occupational Safety and Health Administration and got OSHA involved. And so here came the OSHA inspectors. Well, we want to know what is your uh, what is your policy? What are you doing for, you know, in terms of mask policy? And by the way, they're not just asking this of, hey, we heard that uh, maybe there isn't enough mask compliance going on. We'd like to encourage you, you know, wherever possible, encourage your customers to put on their masks. It, it comes in the form of we had a report that you are not upholding these mask guidelines and we are going to fine you $10,000 if this is proven to be the case. Now, I don't know if it was Karen or if it was the uh, if it was OSHA. I wasn't really clear on this. It sounds like it was Karen who was like, "I need you to post your mask policy for everybody to see." And the beautiful thing about this was uh, okay, they want to post the the mask policy this business owner said, OK, I'm going to just post a picture of Governor Herbert, governor of Utah, uh, former governor of Utah at a party with no mask on. Oh, here's a picture of Nancy Pelosi with no mask. Here is a picture picture of Dr. Fauci maskless. That's my mask policy. <laughs> and on the one hand, I'm like, yes. I love to see this kind of principled defiance. On the other hand. You know, something like that is only going to enrage Karen and her little cadre of Karens out there looking for looking for problems. Their solutions looking for problems and creating them wherever they can. And it sickens me to think that 
you know, if I was just very direct and told you, here's the name of this business, those of you who are listening, you, you probably have figured it out. You, you know who I'm talking about. Because they're good people, and their product is good, and there's no reason for people to go targeting them over something like this. And yet people do. That's the kind of cancel culture that I'm finding I have absolutely no stomach for. Actually, I'm not surprised. I, I, I don't want to control other people. I don't feel that need. Like, my life is so bad, I have to go out there and control other people, you know, to make myself feel like, my, like I'm being heard. But under a lot of the COVID restrictions, that's exactly what is happening. This is how it's playing out. And I don't know about you, but uh, maybe I'm not the one who's being pushed around here. But I'm just damn sick and tired of seeing people pushed around who are doing nothing wrong. And and I apologize because I really try to keep the anger, you know, dialed back. I don't want anger, you know, informing my decisions and informing my choices and how I think about and how I view uh, certain people or things. Anger can, can cloud a person's thinking. But I'm here to tell you, I am feeling legit 24 karat anger flowing through my veins as I hear about these these folks who just have to go out there and cause problems. And it's it's frustrating on a couple of different levels. I mean, getting OSHA involved, really? The federal government's going to come in and get involved? Okay. The only time I have ever seen OSHA get involved in a business, and by the way, it did involve a $10,000 fine, was a radio station that I worked at many, many years ago, had a problem in that the pump, which was drawing well water, and therefore all the culinary water to the, the station, went out. And therefore, a period of about five or six days until they could drill a new well and put a new pump down, we were without running water. Now, they, they rigged up a tractor with a big tank on it and ran it, and, and we, we had water after a day or two. But for a couple of days, you know, we were, uh, we were being told, hey, don't use the bathroom. If you have to go, please run down the street to the, you know, to the gas station or whatever. Well, one of my coworkers actually dropped a dime. And there were OSHA inspectors there in the radio station after a couple of days. And they weren't messing around. You don't have running water in here? They, f- they hit them with a $10,000 fine. This was more than 30 years ago, by the way. And I remember how angry and how, how saddened the station owner was that why couldn't you come to me first before you bring in the big guns? I think some people just get off on bringing in the big guns. Again, it gives them a chance to flex with absolutely no risk to themselves. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Rio del Sion Home Lots. Also by Monticello College and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. These are wonderful sponsors. There are contact links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com if you'd like to uh, drop them a note to say thank you or better still to do business with them and purchase their product and or service. By the way, in the case of Monticello College, that's a a pretty life-changing thing right there. And if you don't believe me, check out their website. There's a link in the contact uh, information under Sponsors. At the Brian Hyde Show.com. Today's show notes for February 12th. So 
like a lot of people, I have been learning over the years that the level of dissatisfaction in my life seems tied to how closely I follow politics and how much time I'm spending on social media. And if you think about it, it should make sense, right? I mean, this is this is where so much of the conflict comes from. It's playing out on social media. Clown world doesn't begin to cover how upside down things are becoming. And I'm grateful for people like uh, James Bovard, commentators like him who remind us that, you know, as much as things seem to be out of our control, sovereignty still rests with the people and not with Congress. Now, having said that, I haven't been watching any of the uh, the impeachment trial. To me, this is political melodrama. And, and yeah, I'm sorry if that comes off as I'm so much better than you because I don't watch it. It just adds no value to my life. That's the decision right there. If you want to watch it, if it adds, you know, depth and understanding to your existence, by all means, do so. For me, nah, it's usually just a source of, of frustration. Because my, my BS detector which, believe it or not, is pretty finely tuned after, you know, 30 plus years of, you know, sitting behind this microphone and, as some would say, dispensing the stuff. But um, I just I have a fairly good sense of when people are spinning. And my BS detector starts smoking. It starts putting out showers of sparks. I have to take it outside anytime I turn on any kind of political coverage just because I have such a hard time um, putting up with people who are shading the truth or spinning it or otherwise trying to obfuscate and keep me from seeing things as they are. Having said that, I'm actually kind of regretting that I did not have a chance to watch uh, some of uh, the the president's uh, defense attorneys in this uh, trial in the Senate today. Because in the words of one commentator on uh, on Twitter, it's been like shooting shifts in a barrel. <laughs> I guess they have they have taken um, they have taken a lot of the accusations and well the president's incendiary rhetoric and his splashing about of gasoline and other flammable or combustible liquids he's what led to this he's the reason why there was this unrest there was clash at the Capitol on the sixth they have taken that and absolutely dismantled it and and particularly I'm looking at uh, what's the guy's name. Um, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, who just posted, he just tweeted, it's a massacre. And people are saying, yeah, it, it is. It's a mostly peaceful massacre. The The truth is coming out. CBS apparently cut away from the coverage because it was just getting too uncomfortable to sit there and watch the Democrats um, get bent over a barrel hard. And I do have to laugh. The one person who posted the picture of uh, Apollo Creed's, uh, uh, his corner man, you know, from Rocky Four, throw the damn towel. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, forgive me. I'd probably be better served watching a monster truck rally, but I'm kind of wishing that, that I could have seen this. If for no other reason, it's just good to see a bit of pushback against this nonstop cacophony of, oh, it was the worst day ever. I mean, Mitt Romney was up there emoting yesterday. I almost died because people were angry and... You know, not one of these people who is putting on this incredible show of dramatic, uh, you know, sorrow and, oh, I was I'm a victim. You know, not one of them has any of the self-awareness to ask themselves, is there any possible way that I have contributed to the dissatisfaction, nay, the anger of the American people? They can't conceive it. It's, it's not within their, their ability 
to think that, that in any way they could be wrong because well, we're members of Congress. You know, we are we are the ones who cannot be wrong. And this is true of people in other positions of authority. But in Congress, it is insufferable. So I want to segue now to a commentary from James Bovard. This was published by the American Institute for Economic Research. Sovereignty still rests with the people, not Congress. I needed this message. So, Mr. Bovard, Jim, if I may, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for spelling this out. I'm sharing it with you, my listener, because maybe this will give you some of the encouragement that it gave me. James Bovard says, politicians lustfully rejoicing at their own power is the ultimate dog bites man story that goes unremarked in Washington. The Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump included one such vivid vignette, an ominous warning that Congress recognizes no limit over its rightful sway over the economy and the lives of American citizens. House impeachment manager Representative Jamie Raskin is being lionized for his speeches in the trial. Representative Dean Phillips hailed Raskin as America's professor. In his final pitch to senators on Thursday, Raskin included the usual hackneyed references to Abraham Lincoln and the Declaration of Independence. Then Raskin recited the first we the people sentence of the preamble of the Constitution and declared, you see what just happened? The sovereign power of the people flowed right into Congress. Now, James Bovard says that line may have caused some founding fathers to roll over in their graves. And we'll return to this point in a moment. Raskin continued waving his arms and becoming more emotional as he recited the powers that Congress possessed. Comprehensive, vast powers that all of you know so well. The power to regulate commerce domestically and internationally. The power to raise the budget and taxes and to spend money and govern the seat of government and on and on and on. Raskin then fervently declared that Congress is also entitled to all other powers that would be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. That's all of us. Now, James Bovard says this all of us makes Congress sound like a wonderful club. Too bad you and I aren't in it. Raskin's spiel accurately portrays how plenty of legislators perceive their prerogatives. Congress is entitled to spend as much as it pleases, such as Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus, because they were elected. Congress is entitled to impose any restriction it pleases on domestic or international trade because they were elected. Congress is entitled to impose new taxes, seizing more of citizens' property because they were elected. Because they won an election, legislators feel entitled to domineer the people who voted for them and anyone else who falls under their sway. Yep, I'd say that pretty well sums it up. James Bovard says Raskin can now pass for a public intellectual because a staffer inserted quotes from Voltaire and Thomas Paine in his closing speech. Unfortunately, Voltaire's epigram on the de facto job description of Congress, the art of government consists of taking as much money as possible from one class of citizens to give to another, didn't make it into Raskin's speech. Nor did Raskin mention one of Paine's best-known lines, government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil, at its worst state, an intolerable one. Like most members of Congress, Raskin ignored the most valuable parts of the Constitution, the shall-make-no-law provisions, the dozens of do-not-enter signs erected by the Bill of Rights. Legislators scoff at those paper blockades and instead rhapsodize over powers that other parts of the Constitution award them. The Fifth Amendment protects property rights and due process, 
But members of Congress don't even genuflect to those provisions of the Constitution anymore. Instead, reckless legislating has been standard procedure on Capitol Hill for three decades. Members of Congress have become so arrogant that they brazenly spend trillions of dollars in other people's money without even reading the legislation they approve, such as last December's unread 5,593-page omnibus bill that will cost taxpayers $2.3 trillion. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. Again, this is from James Bovard. Sovereignty still rests with the people, not Congress. Yeah, it's a little bit of a civic lesson, but it's one that I think a lot of us could benefit from. And yes, there is a link to it in the show notes, which you will find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to say a quick word about one of my sponsors. That would be the uh, Rio del Sion Home Lots. This is right outside Zion National Park in southern Utah. If you've never been, you know, saying this is one of the most beautiful places on Earth doesn't even begin to hint at the incredible natural beauty. And uh, these home lots are down along the Virgin River, so just outside of the park. They are absolutely gorgeous. There are a limited number of them. Uh, Believe it or not, they're being snapped up pretty quickly because a lot of people are moving to my home state of Utah from out of state. And the really, really lucky ones are moving to where there is such an incredible abundance of natural beauty. If you'd like to find out more, just click on the information link at the bottom of today's show notes right under my sponsors, Rio del Sion Home Lots. You'll find them at the BrianHydeShow.com show notes for February 12th. I'm sharing with you an article from James Bovard. This is published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. And he is talking about how sovereignty still rests with the people. Oh, I know there's a lot of posing and flexing going on right now in Washington, D.C. But the power that these politicians claim does not originate, you know, from them. They, they are not the source, nor the many words they put on paper, nor the huge bureaucratic system that they are busily building every hour of every day. Legitimate political power starts with the people and is delegated, meaning it can be taken away by the people if those who wield that power do not represent them correctly. By the way, he gives a great example of this in how in some cases they won't even read massive pieces of legislation that impose incredible costs and hardship on a lot of people's homes and lives and finances. For instance, after the Obama administration and its allies pushed the 2,700-page Affordable Care Act through Congress, Bovard says numerous legislators admitted they hadn't read the bill. Senator Tom Carper from Delaware explained, I don't expect to actually read the legislative language because reading the legislative language is among the most confusing things I've ever read in my life. Yeah, but not nearly as confusing as the blizzard of new mandates and penalties inflicted on American citizens and private companies, says James Bovard. He says politicians believe they are so superior to common folks that citizens will be better off 
even when politicians have little clue of what they are dictating to the American people. Representative Sam Farr of California urged his colleagues to vote for a massive unread omnibus bill in 2014. Quote, hold your nose and make this a better world. End quote. Bovard says no wonder federal spending's out of control and the federal debt is a growing threat to our future. He says legislators also occasionally make stark how they view themselves as a superior caste. This week's Senate impeachment trial was spurred by 800 pro-Trump protesters swarming into the Capitol on January 6th. Some of the protesters clashed violently with police and some legislators tearfully testified about their personal trauma. But some members of Congress have no hesitation to throw other Americans to the wolves at the same time they demand unlimited police protection themselves. Last April, shortly before the nation's homicide rate began skyrocketing after the death of George Floyd, Raskin urged the Department of Homeland Security to remove gun retailers and manufacturers from the list of essential businesses in its guidance to state and local officials in containing the spread of COVID-19. Firearms distributors provide no proven public health benefit. In fact, the proliferation of guns pose added safety threats to communities. While a city after city was ravaged by violent protests and police protection collapsed, Raskin did not cease his efforts to block Americans from access to firearms to defend their own lives. In his final speech to the Senate, Raskin recited warnings about tyranny, but seemed oblivious to how his own philosophical conceits lead to elective despotism. A 1937 Senate report aptly declared that the Constitution is the people's charter of the powers granted those who govern them. The Bill of Rights recognized the rights of American citizens. It did not bestow those rights on a conquered populace. But Raskin claimed the sovereign power of the people flowed right into Congress. James Bovard says that notion should be heretical. In a free society, as Senator John Taylor of Virginia wrote 200 years ago, if the people are sovereign, meaning the final resting place of power, their governments cannot also be sovereign. As a federal appeals court declared in 1973, sovereignty remains at all times with the people, and they do not forfeit through elections the right to have the law construed against and applied to every citizen. As Taylor observed in 1820, the Constitution wisely rejected this indefinite word sovereignty as a traitor of civil rights and endeavored to kill it dead by specifications and restrictions of power that it might never again be used in political disquisitions. James Bovard says politicians do not become entitled to boundless power simply by poaching the inalienable rights of the people they claim to represent. Though modern historians have buried the phrase, the Founding Fathers were intently aware of the danger of slavery by Parliament. Only 25% of Americans now approve of Congress, though legislators take solace in the flattery heaped upon them by MSNBC, CNN, and much of the Washington press corps. No amount of selective quotes from the Constitution by Raskin and other righteous legislators will curb the contempt that politicians have richly earned. Bovard says many Americans instinctively recognize that, as Thomas Paine declared, the trade of governing has always been monopolized by the most ignorant and the most rascally individuals of mankind. Now, you don't have to agree just because I shared that with you, but man, there's a there's a ring of truth there that uh, that sure hits home for me. Going to shift gears here. What's the difference between 
public servants and parasites. This seems like a good segue based on what I just shared with you. Well, here's an article from John Green on AmericanThinker.com. And he says, I have a question. When did politicians and federal employees start calling themselves public servants? Even more importantly, why are we letting them? It's almost as if they're trying to claim the mantle of nobility for making a sacrifice in the public interest. But he says, I don't understand what that sacrifice is. They're paid better and have better benefits than most private sector employees. They're rarely held accountable for their performance. Why do we treat them as if they're serving a higher calling than any other profession in the country? Take Joe Biden, for example. He claims to have been in public service for over 50 years. But what has he done in that time? He was the first senator to initiate a personal attack on a Supreme Court nominee. His attack on Robert Bork was shameful and helped create the current environment of Supreme Court politicization. He also used the power of his office to enrich his family members. Exactly how did Lunch Bucket Joe become a multimillionaire on the salary of a politician? I fail to see how that's been a service to the country. Now, Mr. Green says Joe certainly isn't alone. Was Nancy Pelosi serving the public interest when she withheld COVID-19 relief for months just to deny President Trump a win? Was she serving her constituents when she bought stock in Tesla just days before President Asterisk signed an order directing all agencies to switch to electric cars? There's a term for that. Insider training. Being the civic-minded public servant she is, I'm sure she'll be sharing her windfall with her constituents. But he says it's not all about money. Some politicians have a completely idea of providing service. Eric Swalwell placed himself in servitude to a Chinese spy. Exactly what service did Eric provide? Was it anything that would allow him to claim nobility? And I mean in the U.S., not in China. John Green says, let's not forget the bureaucrats that serve our nation. Look at the EPA. They're good at two things, choking the life out of commerce and polluting rivers. In the name of serving the public interest, the IRS targeted the Tea Party, thus silencing their voice in the midst of a presidential campaign. They also leaked confidential tax records to the press and provided tax records to the FBI without a warrant. Isn't it noble of them to poke us in the eye while taking our money? Perhaps the next time you're at the grocery store checkout, the clerk should send your shopping list to Child Protective Services rather than thank you. It would be the public servant thing to do. Oh, and don't forget about the FBI. It's in a class all by itself. Our sworn law enforcement agents initiated a coup attempt against a duly elected president. They set a perjury trap for his national security advisor. They even falsified evidence to a FISA court. Now, John Green says, I've heard arguments that the FBI rank and file are honest and professional. We shouldn't blame the whole FBI for a few bad apples. And he says, what complete balderdash? If most of them were honest, where were the whistleblowers during the investigation of President Trump? As far as being professional, how did they fail to prevent the Boston Marathon bombing? Even after they'd received a tip, the Sarnievs were up to something. He says, I have the same question about the Pulse nightclub massacre. Was it also just a few bad apples that tried to frame Richard Jewell for the Atlanta Olympics bombing? The FBI even had warnings about the 9-11 attack yet failed to act. Of course, our highly professional FBI agents were able to determine that a noose really was a garage door pole. It only required 15 agents and five days to make that determination. That's some cunning police work. He says it appears the FBI is either using their badges to target political enemies or they're just a modern-day version of the Keystone Cops in tailored suits. But sacrificing for the public interest? I'm just not seeing it. We'll be back in just a moment. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Do want to mention that uh, one of our sponsors is Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Look, if you need commercial insurance, there's a pretty good chance you're already wearing more than one hat. So if the burden of becoming a commercial insurance expert is a little more than you're ready to tackle at this time, right? You're ready to go get your licensing and everything. Why don't you contact my friends at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and have absolute confidence that you are dealing with people who do this every day, who know exactly what they're about and who are there to to make your life easier, make it easier for you to wear all those other hats that you're wearing, wearing rather as a small business owner. You'll find the contact information in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just look for the sponsors down there at the bottom, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. So I'm sharing this article here from John Green on AmericanThinker.com, Public Servants or Parasites. And I, I feel like I'm probably sounding a little angrier today than I normally do. At least I hope I don't come off as angry. But, uh, you know, my frustration with with grandstanding politicians and just opportunists i i'm really i'm over it i'm done they have nothing to offer me that i want in fact if i could be so bold i spend most every waking minute of my life figuring out how to escape their clutches how to avoid their power how to thwart their plans to control me or some aspect of my life and you know what? That actually brings me some happiness. Every time I tell them no, I've retained, you know, a measure of my freedom. But I want it all back. <laughs> so, and that's why I share stories like the one I'm sharing here from John Green. Um, one of the things that he points out here is he says, you know, the alphabet soup agencies that you see in Washington, they're no better. Claiming the term, you know, public servant, he says employees across all federal agencies formed the so-called resistance to fight all things Trump. They gave us four years of leaks and unconfirmed anonymous sources undermining anything Donald Trump tried to accomplish. They did it all because they decided we needed something other than what you voted for. How would you rate a waiter that brings you what they want to serve you and not what you ordered? So he says, spare me the claims of nobility. Who's really laboring to benefit the country? Is it politicians and bureaucrats whose only focus seems to be amassing power and joking commerce? (laughs) Or is it the nameless workers who get up at dawn every day and keep this country running? The real nobility belongs to the farmers who put meals on our tables, the truckers who ensure supplies arrive on time, and the linemen that keep the lights on. As for our self-proclaimed federal public servants, They're overpaid employees with lifetime job security, at best. At worst, they're parasites on society with aspirations to become our rulers. So the next time a politician or bureaucrat says, they're serving me, he says, I have one thing to say. I want my tip back. (laughs) This, too, will be linked in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. By the way, just a quick uh, note here. This is from Twitter. uh, Developing story. Paul Sperry posted this about 20 minutes ago. Anchors and analysts on CNN, on CBS 
NBC and ABC are frantically trying to re-argue the Democrats' impeachment case against Trump in the wake of effective defense by Trump lawyers armed with video montages of Democrats inciting violence and arguing the 2016 election was stolen. I know it's not right to sit there and gloat or to, to feel that shot and fraud, you know, when someone else's misfortune becomes apparent. And at the same time, if there was ever a group of people that deserved it, it's that group of toxic, self-important so-and-sos sitting there conducting that trial right now. So I'm happy to see this. All right. I'm going to shift gears. We're going to take it in a totally different direction. Look, I, I've told you before, I have a part-time gig in which uh, I work part-time at, uh, at a local convenience store. And uh, it's, I, I, I won't say this is something I've always aspired to because it's not. But at the same time, it's been a wonderful opportunity to really get to see the public and to, to be reminded. These are the people that uh, you're, you're wanting to talk to. These are the people that someday, you know, you're hopefully going to be sharing relevant information with. As opposed to just, you know, they're all Democrats, they're all Republicans, they're all this and that. No, they're real people. One of the things that I get to do, though, is I get to to navigate the bureaucratic uh, rules and laws governing tobacco. And we sell a lot of tobacco. This tobacco and alcohol are very big money makers. And this is true, you know, for any place that sells them. But it's curious in my home state of Utah, there's there's almost a crusade to try to ban this flavor. You know, for instance, uh, vaping, you can't sell favored flavored vapes. Because ostensibly there's people who, who think that this is the gateway that will get children to start smoking. And this is playing out on the national level, too. But J.D. Tusil, writing for Reason.com, talks about a menthol cigarette ban and how it will fail like every other prohibition scheme. I'm not a smoker. If you're not a smoker, you may think, well, this has nothing to do with me. But it does. It does in the sense that it shows more of the overreach of government, and it also shows something, and this is one of the more interesting lines from this story. The winners in every battle over restrictions are the people who do whatever they please without regard for government officials. Doesn't that sound subversive? And yet it puts a smile on my face because it's like, yeah, they stopped asking permission. J.D. Tusil says, look, menthol cigarettes are especially bad and should be banned, say a coalition of 23 state attorneys general in a recent letter to the Food and Drug Administration. Now, these officials are eager to impose a new prohibition, even as marijuana restrictions fall away across the country. And Americans take tentative steps to undo decades of failed prohibition of other intoxicating drugs. The compelling and consistent scientific evidence shows that removing menthol cigarettes from the U.S. market will likely reduce youth smoking initiation, improve smoking secession outcomes in adult smokers, advance health equity, and benefit public health. This is what it says in the letter, co-sponsored by Illinois' Attorney General Kwame Rual with Idaho Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. And it's also signed by their counterparts in Connecticut, Delaware, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Iowa, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, New York... North Carolina, the North Mariana Islands. Holy cow, I didn't even realize they were states. Uh, Oregon, Washington, I'm sorry, Oregon, Washington, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Puerto Rico, and Vermont. Now, as dubious as the claims of benefits from banning a particular flavor of tobacco, 
might be. They don't venture so far into the land of magical thinking as another assertion in the letter. After several paragraphs insisting that they're up to the challenge, the attorneys general wave away the seemingly inevitable hurdles that have hobbled the enforcement of every other prohibition in human history. The letter adds, there's little reason to suggest that prohibiting menthol cigarettes will cause the emergence of an illicit market that will threaten the public health gains from prohibiting menthol cigarettes or that state and federal authorities will be unable to prevent the emergence of such illicit activity. Now, in this case, J.D. Tussil says, hey, if illicit activity is no concern when it comes to menthol cigarettes, why do reports suggest that Massachusetts, whose attorney general signed the letter, is on the receiving end of a flood of illegal products smuggled from elsewhere? Jonathan Scher, executive director of the New England Convenience Store and Energy Marketers Association, says with every month that passes, the state's ban on flavored tobacco becomes increasingly absurd. All anyone needs to do is look at the excise tax stamp numbers from June through November to understand how ineffective and ridiculous this ban is. Rhode Island and New Hampshire have combined to sell 18.9 million more stamps than they did over the same period in 2019, while Massachusetts has sold 17.7 million fewer. Now, admittedly, he says a national ban would prevent the smuggling of forbidden cigarettes from one state to the other but that would only open the floodgates to potentially riskier black market cigarettes from outside the country. The U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives warns that counterfeit cigarettes are manufactured under low-quality control standards and are smuggled into the United States outside of legitimate commerce to avoid paying taxes associated to legitimate tobacco manufacturers and sellers. The trade of counterfeit tobacco products is a rapidly growing global problem. So, look, they mean well. I'm going to cut to the chase here. Uh, J.D. Tussil says, look, the states, the real victors here aren't the products, first of all. He says the eventual winners in every battle over restrictions are the people who buy, sell, provide, and use whatever goods and services they please without regard for the hopes and fears of government officials. He says the state attorneys general who signed the letter to the FDA couldn't stand in the way of people who wanted marijuana. They haven't effectively blocked access to other drugs the public likes. And they've had little luck in preventing people from evading high tobacco tobacco taxes. So a ban on menthol cigarettes offers no more likelihood of success than any other harebrained prohibition scheme. Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check those out for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.